I basically went out there and within three days was teaching and coaching and training uh, management and um, it was amazing fun. It was the most amazing fun ever. I had a company car for the first time in my life. I was earning good money. Um, I was self-employed and I just built up a roster of clients and it wasn't about how can I make money, it was how can I connect with people, how can I be the best, how can I deliver the most value, how can I make them feel special. Welcome to the Get Real About Business podcast, where we uncover the real deal about automation, getting leads, retargeting and sales funnels, you know, the stuff that'll actually make you money and doesn't empty your wallet. Get valuable, actionable information from me and other experts in the online marketing space, which will boost your business beyond its current boundaries. Prepare for some hot tips today. I'll be your host, Clive Maloney. Hey, welcome to another episode of the Get Real About Business podcast. This is episode 21. And today's very special because I've got an extended interview with Bob Buckley. Now, Bob Buckley is a really interesting guy. He grew a really successful six-figure business in a very saturated market. And I wanted to bring him on the show so that I can pick his brains for you. We can get all the lowdown on how he did that. Uh, Bob's been very generous in this interview. He's shared a lot of really cool, tangible tips that you can take away. So because the interview was a little bit longer than normal, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the intro here. I'm just going to dive straight in with Bob just to let you know before we do that that I've put together a cheat sheet which you can go download. And what I've done in that cheat sheet is I've distilled all of the tips and the ideas and the strategies that Bob has shared in the interview. And so if you want to get the shortcut version or the distilled notes, then just go ahead uh, to my website or the show notes page, getrealaboutbusiness.com forward slash 21. The only thing I should say is that we did have some sound problems on this interview. In fact, believe it or not, I actually recorded it on three different devices, hoping that we would catch it somehow. And we still had a few problems. So the audio quality in places isn't great. There's a little bit of squeakiness as I've tried to clean that up. I'm very sorry that that's there. It really is the best that I can do. But it's a brilliant interview. It's worth persevering. It's not that difficult to understand. It's just a bit of squeakiness in the background. But listen up, grab the notes, and enjoy. This is me talking with Bob Buckley. Okay, so Bob, tell me, how does someone go from being an English teacher in uh, in a country that you weren't born with, how do you go from being an English teacher to making a quarter of a million pounds? Uh, yeah, no, that's a great question. Um... I guess I, if I start at the English teacher bit, I'm a languages guy, so I studied languages at uni. I took that traditional university route, yeah. and I became obsessed with modern languages, foreign languages, specifically German, about the age of 15. And um, it was always my vision as a 15-year-old to learn fluent German and then move over to Germany. Don't ask me why. I have no explanation for that. But I just had this drive, this urge within me to go on this adventure, basically. As soon as I could get out of my small town, I went to uni and then um, basically studied languages, first of all. And then, as soon as I finished uni on the Friday, I, I graduated uni on the Friday. Within three days, I was in the boardroom of a large automotive parts manufacturer in northern Germany teaching the C-level leaders how to negotiate contracts in England. Wow. 
You finished your studies, you went across to, to Germany, big companies. What was it like making that transition, like, you know, starting up there? And, and tell us a little bit about the market and, and why you chose to do that. Yeah, yeah. So back then, I knew nothing at all, Clive, about business whatsoever. In fact, business wasn't even on my mind. It was all about adventure, basically, and freedom. You know, I was brought up in the north of England, um, you know, in a lovely place, landscape-wise, a very repressive place, you know, culturally-wise, and, and, and so I couldn't wait to get out. And um, I bet for me, it wasn't about how can I make money, it was how can I have freedom and how can I have an adventure and what do I need to do to, to finance that, you get me? Yes. So that was the idea. So I went out there, and um, because I was so good at German, my aim when I was learning German, just so that you know, my aim was to be the best in the country, and I, I, I was probably, in my mind anyway, the best German speaker in the UK for our age, and that was always my aim. And and I didn't I didn't know if it was true or not, but I, that was my goal. So I became almost second language German, and so going out there, it wasn't too difficult. I've been going out to Germany all my life, so although it sounds fancy going out to a foreign country, I've been going I've been arranging trips off my own back since I was fourteen. Every year going out there just because I loved it for some reason and still do. So going out there wasn't about business, it was about adventure and um, teaching English out in Germany or basically in any European country. I always say if you can teach English in Europe, you can make money. Yeah. That's probably changing now as, as, as we move away from it. <laughs> Certainly back then that was the case. It yeah. probably still is the case. In fact, it is still the case. Yeah. So yeah. I basically went out there and within three days was teaching and coaching and training um, management. And um, it was amazing fun. It was the most amazing fun ever. I had a company car for the first time in my life. I was earning good money. Um, I was self-employed and I just built up a roster of clients. And it wasn't about how can I make money? It was... How can I connect with people? How can I be the best? How can I deliver the most value? How can I make them feel special? That's always been a big part of my ethos when it comes to business. How can you make your client or your customer feel special so that when they're with you, they get the, you know, the feels type of thing? Uh, and so that was my aim going out there. I mean, it turns out those were quite good. Yeah. It's funny. I speak to a lot of people about like why they set out in business and you know, some people say, yeah, because we just want to make some money. But the vast majority of people have some kind of story behind it. And we don't create a business just because we want to have a business. We create a business because we want a particular lifestyle. And maybe that's about controlling how we spend our time and, like, you know, have the feeling of the control around your business, your life and everything, you know, that goes along with that. But, I, you know, I get what you're saying about wanting the adventure and um, interesting for you how – it was always about just connecting. Do you think that made much of a difference in how you know how you was able to sort of get out there, get in front of people, and and to build a business? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so in my life, I I think I think we're now on our thirtieth house. So I've moved thirty times. I went to fifteen, sixteen different schools when I was young. My parents moved around a lot. And I'm an introvert, so initially I imagine it was quite hard, but I learned very quickly how to connect with other human beings on a genuine level, you know, and, and or, or what I considered to be a, a genuine level. So, yeah, that was a skill. And, and being able to connect with people without any prerequisites, I always used to have this thing in my mind when I was young, like there are no strangers. So think about the world. If, the, if, you, if you as a young person believe there are no strangers, 
That's a great way to live because you have, I had no fear to go and talk to this person or that person or the other person. And so going out there to Germany and doing the business and, and whatnot um, was pretty easy. And, and one of the things my grandfather taught me was, you know, you speak to people the same, whether they're asking for money on the street or whether they're sitting in the boardroom, it don't matter. Yeah. And I found that to be very useful. So it's interesting that you describe yourself as an introvert and yet you don't have any difficulties or any qualms approaching different people, starting conversations and that willingness to get out there and connect and to start conversations. That seemed like it was a great start for you and gave you what you needed to kind of get your foot in the door. Was you very competitive? No. So you wasn't thinking like, you know, so how, like, how much money can I make? Like, where's the next deal? You're not that kind of guy? Uh, where's the next deal? Yes. I'm not a competitive guy. That's just a fact. Like, when you play me at Monopoly, you'll get so pissed off because I'm just like, oh, well, there you go. From an early age, I, I realized that the only competitive is myself. Yeah. And now being a Zen guy, yeah. a very poor Zen student, I realized that to be the truth. So I was never competitive and I just wanted to be the best according to me. Yeah. You know what I mean by that, though, Clive? Like, just be the best according to you. Yeah. Because you don't even know what anybody else is thinking anyway. You think you do, but you don't. So, um, and what I'd like to say is, you know, um, to people who are listening, this move to Germany didn't just appear out of thin air, you know. Uh, I'd been visualizing this since the age of 15. I'd been, I'd been obsessed with the idea of living out there, working out there, speaking. I, I knew exactly how it would all look before I even went there. So it was sort of inevitable that it would happen, and, and that's what it was about for me. I never, I don't have uh, any great contacts. I didn't have any great connections in Germany. I don't have a, a wealthy background. It was just that's all I had it, is my mind, and and I think that is a big lesson now as we go into this podcast and people start to hear about the tactics and the, the strategies that we yeah. use to infiltrate this market. Yeah. What's underlying it all is I had a successful business before I even moved to Germany. Because you'd visualized it, not necessarily because you'd created it yet, but in your mind's eye, you could see what it looked like. You'd spend so much time thinking about it, it kind of felt real to you. Yeah, not only that, it's not only that you visualized it, because, uh, you know, I have a thing about the law of attraction. It's like, if the law of attraction was really, like, so effective, everybody would have everything they ever wanted. Exactly. So, you know, for me, I'm, I've got, like, a science experimental type of approach to life, like a direct response approach to life. and. I try something, and if it works, I carry on with it, and if it doesn't, I don't. And the way, uh, I think the underlying thing of it all was uh, uh, faith, a belief, a belief that I don't give a shit what you say, whether you think you can or whether you can't. I know that it's going to happen, so screw you, man. <laughs> and that's what it was. Seriously, you know, that's what it was. I don't know why I was like that, you know, but I just yeah. used to sit at home and plan out, you know, what my house would be and where I'd live and, yeah, I was quite sad in a way. I was quite a geeky little kid, um, but I just had this single single purpose in my mind to, to get out there and, and live in Germany, and I still to this day don't know why, but that's underlying it all is this, is this vision first, but also the belief, like, not that it's far away, but that you could... You just have to create it and it, it'll come. Yeah, know? yeah. And I think it's got to be 80, 90% of everything because uh, I, although we talk about, like, law of attraction, Often people like want more money and want better relationships and stuff, but actually what we're doing is we're focusing on the fact that we haven't got enough money and we haven't got like the best relationships. And so we're kind of focusing on the wrong end of it. Also, the law of attraction only works when we take action. 
And it's about taking the right action. And then with your approach around with direct response, it's all test and measure, what works, what doesn't work. Let's keep learning, keep trying. But you do get more of what you focus on. Yeah, and it's hard work. Like, you know, I went to, so I went to university in North Wales in Bangor to do German and history. After the first year, I was like, this is rubbish. I want to be the best at German. I don't yeah. want to split my clothes. I want to be the best. Yeah. The best of the best. So I, I went on to sing along and was focused on German. And the hours that I put in to be the best, I don't even know how many hours. I didn't even count them because it wasn't about that. It was just about doing it. You know, and what I often say is we don't, we dance to dance, you know, we, we, we play music to play music. We don't play music to finish the tune. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. So whenever, whenever you want, whenever you're aiming for something, you know, what I think what's useful is to say, this is what I'm going to create. So you watch me and then just get into the daily grind of the work and just do the work. I do think there's a lot of myth about this idea that you can conjure up a vision board and then it will just appear. And then when something coincidentally appears, you go, ha, I fucking told you my vision board worked. <laughs> Whereas really, yeah. it's just the the nature of life that things might appear. So yeah, I think hard work and knowing what you want and then just, just knowing what you've got to do. And the only enemy is yourself. I, I posted something on Instagram two days ago, you know, you don't have an enemy, you don't have a competitor. Exactly, and often we look at competitors, we should be looking from a point of view to educate and learn, but a lot of us um, are looking just to compare and that doesn't necessarily help. It, it tends to hold us off. I like what you said about dance to dance. I'm, I love that. I'm going to use that. I'm going to pinch that if you don't mind. It's not mine, so feel free. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Uh, so tell me a little bit about what is it that you created? Because you started with nothing other than this huge sense that you're going to go out there and you're going to make it big, whatever yeah. that looked like to you. Yeah. What is it you created? Yep. So, so first time out there, when I moved out there, I, um, I became, I basically started a freelance business as a business English coach. So I worked for one, two, three other large companies and they fed work to me, clients to me. And I basically traversed Northern Germany between sort of Bremen, Osnabrück, um, Hamburg, for those people who know that area, traveling to different companies every day, sometimes six or seven companies. And I would basically train them, coach them in, on how to speak business English. So I, I, I trained in, in, in business English uh, coaching and, um, the, the method that I use is very much based around coaching rather than the traditional teaching, which works very well for business people. So I created, uh, you know, within sort of a few months, I was I was sort of earning maybe three, four thousand euros a month after coming out of uni, you know. And what was funny back then, Clive, was I got paid by the week, like every week, by check. So in Germany, they still do that. They'll give you a check and then you can go to the bank where the check was issued and you can get the money out. I don't know if you can even do that in England anymore. I think you can. I don't know. I've not done it. No, no, I don't know. So but yeah, so, so, so within a very short space of time, I was earning a lot of money and it was hard work. Yeah. But what was amazing was I loved it. And while I was teaching these people English, so I worked with you know senior leaders of automotive companies, I worked with energy companies, the sales teams from companies like GE, BASF, uh, you know, the bigger German companies. And very quickly, I realized, number one, this is big business. Yeah. And number two, this is a lot of fun. And number three, I learn at the same time as they learn. And what was great about the way I taught it is in Germany, you have a very specific business culture. Are you familiar with the way things work over there? Have you ever done any business? 
I've got a couple of clients in Germany, but uh, that's as far as it goes, really. So I kind of know what's going on in their business. But culturally, probably not so, not yeah. so good, though. Okay, well, as you can imagine, it's quite different from in Britain. Um, I actually found it quite difficult coming back to Britain to, to acclimatise to the business culture, which is totally different. But over there, very much based on long-term relationships, no hype and no sleaze selling, and it's very much a, a formal business culture. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. So when you're working with someone over there, in the newer companies and with younger people, they tend to use the first names, but when I was out there, you would never call me Bob, you would call me Mr. Buckley. Yes. So I went out there as an English guy, and what was interesting is when all these guys, these, these leaders and the production managers and operations directors came into the room, when they sat down with me, they suddenly started talking like normal people, using the first name, because I was an excuse as an English guy for them to open up and loosen the ties and you know talk a bit more candidly and so what was great is this english training this coaching i delivered turned very much into almost like leadership meetings in a way and i just vicarious vicariously um absorbed stuff from this uh, over two and a half years so probably trained around two thousand people and this isn't a saturated market isn't it there was other providers out there yeah, this was the first time I went. <coughs> oh, that was the first, first time I went out there. Yeah. So I went out twice. I went out the first time, did all this, earned a lot of cash, learned how things work. Had to, had to then come back to the UK for various personal reasons. I was in the UK for about three years. Worked as a management consultant and got into um, behavioural psychology in, 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 in companies and stuff like that as a consultant. And then in two thousand nine, that's when the story continued because that's when I got a call from my former from one of my former clients saying hey how would you like to start up a school of your own yeah wow. because you have to know this I envisioned that when I was 15 it's really important I envisioned that when I was 15 and at the age of 29 it happened yeah and so I, I, when I talk about patience and stamina and discipline like the thing you want ain't just going to appear we hear about overnight success stories all the time, but the truth is those overnight success stories have been years, sometimes decades in the making. Yeah, that is so. And that's what it was like with me. And when I got this call, I'd started to see my partner and we were working in the same company. I just basically came back to the UK. And what was interesting, Clive, is I didn't, run a bit, I didn't start my own business. I just got a job because a lot of my experience in Germany, UK employers just wouldn't accept as legal tender. Can you imagine? No wonder we're in such a bad economic situation for crying out loud. So I just got a normal job and uh, worked for some great companies, did a bit of consulting. And then in January of 2009, literally out of the blue, literally out of the blue, we were walking in the park in Harrogate one lunchtime, me and my partner. We'd already been thinking about moving back to Germany and already thinking, you know what, maybe we can do this. Because if you remember in 2008, the proverbial doo-doo was about to hit the fan we just wanted to get out of the get off the island and go and do something else and we got yeah. a call and it was my former partner saying how would you like to start up a, a language school and so long story short we did the negotiations and six months later we packed everything we owned into a sprinter into a mercedes long wheelbase sprinter okay and we headed out to germany yeah so certainly said you were kind of returning to what you you were doing before but you're looking to do it in a bigger way 
and it, it kind of felt like the right time because what was going on in the UK at the time. What next? Yep. So we basically we we the deal was I got a small amount of startup capital. I got a school. And I got a list of prospects, but I also got a brand as well. So I worked with a larger school who'd already built, built a business. They gave me some of their materials and whatnot. Did a deal. They said, there's money, there's a school. Go and do what you did before and make money. That was literally it. Looking back, it should have been a little bit more watertight than it was. But at the time, I didn't really care. Uh, so we went out there. We were based in the northwest of Germany. We started from our flat. We then got our premises, and I remember the first day of walking into the premises. It was only a small school in a little town called uh, Lingen in the north of Germany. And I remember sitting down and saying to Adele, okay, this is so good, but how do we get clients? <laughs> That's just what I was thinking, because you've gone out, you've, you've borrowed money, and then you've like got some property, and there's a lot of debt hanging over you now. The biggest thing, which is okay if you can pay that back quick, but the biggest thing is, okay, how do you start making money? So what did you do? Yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah. So what you've got to remember is, prior to that, I'd done sort of two, two and a half thousand people. Uh, I'd worked with two, two and a half thousand people already training English and learning the business. You know, I knew how business worked in Germany. I had a lot of contacts, uh, not necessarily in my region, but in Germany anyway. So I knew how the game worked and I knew the, the product and the service extremely well because I'd used it myself for three years so yeah. we got out there and um basically we were in a situation we're in a, a medium-sized town an english language school in germany 10 a penny i mean that literally in every town there will be at least four five in the bigger in like somewhere like dusseldorf you might have 60 because english is an essential part of the professional life in germany so it's not it's a non-negotiable you know which it makes it automatically quite a good business because yeah. you have to have it. Yeah, yeah. It's a little bit like insurance, whatever. Yeah. Okay, it's competitive, but nevertheless, everybody recognises the need that they've got to have some level of insurance. That's it. So it's a demand. So if you, you know, if you're familiar with the concept of feeding a starving crowd, um, you know, people ask you, "What do I need in order to sell my product?" You say, "Well, you need a starving crowd." Yeah. And I had a starving crowd. But what was ironic was within the within this town city that we were in, there was about a nine, there was nine other competitors who were already well established, teaching English, delivering services, delivering in-house training, delivering evening courses, this and that and the other. So I was like, okay, what am I going to do? Like, how am I going to do this? Because no one knows me. I'm not German. Don't have very much money, and I need to get clients. Yeah. Yeah, that was the situation. So that's the situation. You, you've 14 years like with a vision for it. So you had this huge vision. You were in a position where you could actually go out and do it. Tell me about the strategy. How did you then take what you had and then start turning that into a profitable business? Yeah, great. Probably about seven specific things that I can look back and say, yeah, that's what led to us having like 30,000 euro months. Yeah in this crazy market because again just for people listening the situation was 2009 worst recession since second world war in germany very little experience in building business and nobody knew us we were completely unknown so that was the situation but what was interesting is 
can look back now because I sort of spent the last few years sort of looking back and saying, how did that happen? And I think a lot of entrepreneurs are like that. When you get caught up in it, you're just rolling in it. Yeah, yeah. Rolling yeah. with it, I should say. And then you don't really know. And then you have to look back and go, how did that happen? Yeah, yeah. And it's important that we take these times sometimes to stop and think, okay, so what led to me being here? Because if we can understand that, then we can repeat it and we can do it better. That's it. And so I, 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 again, going back to when I was young, um, at the age of 13, 14, I started reading Jean-Paul Sartre. So I don't want to get too deep or anything here, but Jean-Paul Sartre is an existentialist. And I read okay. Humanism and Existentialism when I was 14, like, probably younger, actually. And I, I read a line and it said, your life is the sum of its parts. Love that. That's powerful. Powerful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, that was always with me, you know. Um, but basically, I realised number one, I have to, I, I have to get seen and I have to meet the people. Uh, they have to see me like here. How does that work? Number two, I have to work out how I'm going to get money from them because I always thought about just like getting money, and I see it a bit differently now. But back then, that was the case. But I had a total naivety, Clive. Like I look back now and I say, wow, that naivety allowed me to just tune everything else out because I didn't even know about, well, any of the stuff I know now. Yeah, and that was interesting because we were talking the other day about this and you were saying about naivety. It was in many ways, it was a huge strength to you. Yeah, yeah, that's what I feel. Because now, once you start thinking, you know, um, you know, again, from a Zen perspective, no thinking is better than positive thinking. No thinking is better than positive thinking. And, now, and why is that? Positive thinking is just changing one thought for another thought which is useful to a degree but if you just let there be no thought what will happen is things will arise that you that you didn't know were there before so the point is this naivety that I had enabled me to go at the problem without any of the mindset issues that we've got nowadays with so, you know with the whole rise of social media and this comparison and this all this like looking at what other people are doing I didn't really look at what the competitors were doing so that was number one I didn't really look at what they were doing. I looked where they were and how much they were charging, this, but I didn't really pay attention to them because well, it's not, I'm not interested. Right. It's not really interesting to me because I'm the best. <laughs> so it doesn't matter. Um, so the first one, the first key thing that I did was I positioned the company. So, so for people listening, the first thing, if you, if, you, if, you, if you have a business where you've got a market that is saturated, like literally, like for example, coaching, the coaching industry, you know, saturates. Digital yep. marketing industry, saturates. Recruitment industry, saturates. You agree, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So, so the first thing I did was when we got out there, we had the choice: <clears throat> work with work with our partners, and they said, right, basically, you have you've got you've got this market, and we suggest you just you just offer everything to everybody, and then we'll see what works. So that in those in that way it meant um, offering evening courses to unemployed people. It meant offering in-house training to companies. It meant doing um, kids lessons on a Saturday morning. Uh, it meant doing one-to-one -one coaching and things like this. So that that's what the language training world is like. Those are the products. Type. Do it all. Do it all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, and then and then and then one of the things was they said, oh yeah, and, and we have this um, job centre course that we run. And we've been running for ages, and we don't make any profit on it, but it's really good to get known. For get known by who? By unemployed people. Nah, I ain't doing that. 
And so I actually pushed back and said, no, I'm not going to do that. What I'm going to do is I'm going to, I'm going to go only for working with companies, with, with larger organizations, because this was how I thought, right? My mantra at the beginning of this business was minimum input, maximum output. Yeah. Because ultimately, yeah. I'm a lazy northern swan. So, <laughs> so that was the thing, minimum input, maximum output. And here's seriously, isn't, isn't that a smart thing, though? Why would you work 10 hours and make a certain amount of money when you could work one hour and make the same amount of money? Well, that's like saying, why do 65-year-old millionaires still work? Well, okay, you work because you enjoy doing the working, but like, if you're going to do it, get compensated well for it. Well, yeah, that's right. But it's interesting, isn't it, work? But work for me, <clears throat> I believe, and this is maybe another podcast, from day, I believe work is uh, like a drug for a lot of people. People work in order to avoid life. But I never did that. My thing was, if I'm going to go into this, I just want to do as little as possible and get the most as possible. Otherwise, I can get a job. So that was the first thing. And the second thing was, if you've got a service or a product and you've got three people stood in front of you who all need it, and that guy gives you two quid for it, that guy can pay you 10 quid for it, or that guy wants to give you 200 quid for it, which one of you will you take? You know, that was that, was that naive thinking I was talking about. It's a no-brainer, though, isn't it? It's a no-brainer. So, so I just said, well, I just want to put the effort in to, to get the maximum sales up. So I decided that the, the number one thing, we've got to position ourselves as the premium business English service provider in the area. Because I had a region. I, I, I only had a, I had a region. I couldn't go outside of the region. So the first thing was position. So people call it niching down. But yep. really what it is is just deciding on the market you are going to serve. And for me, one of the main criteria was who's got the most money. So you position yourself at the top of the market rather than yep. the bottom. A lot of people yep. go in there, undercut, 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 which uh, it means they've got to work very hard for it. It also tells everybody that they're cheap and not very good. You went right to the top. Yep. That was the first thing you did. You positioned your company. What did you do next? So we positioned the company, first of all, created a unique value proposition. So I never realized how important that was. And then I went to a sales training. I remember coming back on the train and thinking, oh, this is really powerful. So the second thing we did, once I decided on this positioning, right, we need a unique value proposition. 99% of unique value propositions are bullshit, if I'm allowed to say that word. It's horse manure. What I did was work out, after having spent two or 3,000 hours teaching and training and coaching English, I knew exactly why people would pay me. And the reason was why these leaders and these, these senior managers would give me a lot of money to train them was because they didn't want to look stupid at the trade show or at the international conference or at the meeting when someone asked them to talk about the profit and loss account and they can't even say anything. Yeah. See, this is interesting because a lot of us talk about a unique value proposition and we think about ourselves and what we're going to say. But it's actually about your client. Right, because what I what I wanted was I wanted them to go, oh shit, yeah, no, that's it. Because I realised all my competitors they they're selling English training, they're selling English coaching, business things. That's not what they're buying. You might be selling it, but that's not what they're buying. So think about this: is what you're selling actually what clients are buying? Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. An interesting question. And in this case, it wasn't. So I knew that if I wanted um. We work with a company called GE, a little medical company from, uh, I think they're German or, or American, I can't remember, but 
Um, I asked myself, uh, why does this uh, sales director from G want to work with me? And he wants to work with me, A, to close more deals, B, so he doesn't look stupid when he's A, sounds really German, and B, doesn't know the words right. So, so it's all about confidence, competence, and flair. So you could speak English in any situation with confidence, with competence, and with flair. And um, so that was the UVP. And so that underlay everything we then did, all the marketing we did, all the sales pitches we did, uh, everything. Whenever I had a, a client interview or an intake interview, that's what I would say. And they would literally just take the checkbooks out and say, right, this is great, because I knew exactly what they needed. Yeah, because you'd stop to think about exactly, you know, where they wanted to be, what mattered to them most. Smart thing about the confidence, competence and flair like that, rule of three and all of that. Really good. You worked out your unique value proposition. What next? Yeah, yeah. And just to round off the sentence, from their perspective. So if you're out there listening and you're doing a UVP or you're starting yeah. a business, don't think about what you're selling. Think about what they are buying. Yeah. Big difference. So second thing was I focused on the total experience of the client rather than just on the selling and then the delivering. What that meant was when I went out there, I decided I was going to build a community first and then a company second. Yeah. That meant when we had our premises, what I wanted was when you came in, if you wanted to work with us, you came in, you literally felt like you were in England. As, as soon as you walked in, so we didn't speak German to anybody, and a lot of people berated us for that, like, oh, you should have said no. This is the experience. You want to learn English? Then that's that. So we focused on the total end-to-end -end experience. From the moment they saw our flyer to the moment they gave us a testimonial, we focused on creating this positive experience because I knew from my work in uh, sort of behavioral psychology and motivation and stuff that we don't make decisions with our minds. We decide on, on how the feeling feels. And so that's what I focused on was a to creating a total experience. So rather than just focusing on little, little pieces of the business, I wanted from the minute you came in, I wanted you to feel like you were in England. And people used to come down and just hang out and drink coffee with us or with the receptionist or whatever, just to have a little bit of English banter and then end up booking a few lessons. And, and, and so that was my focus. And the three principles there for me were uh, my three values of the business were cooperation, ownership and empowerment. And on those values, we built the community and the business and we created this experience. So as soon as a trainer would go out to a company, the company would have to speak to them in English. And you have to, what's important, I guess, is to know is when I started scaling the business, i.e. bringing other trainers on board, we only ever employed native English speakers. Right. So we didn't just teach the language, but you got a taste of what it was like to be with a native speaker. And of course, if you are having coaching with a native speaker every week, week on week for 50, 60, 70, 80 weeks, you become fluent. It's going to rub off, isn't it? Yeah. It's, well, I've got evidence. You know, I've done 13,000 hours of this stuff, you know. Yeah, yeah. And so the total experience was the focus. So every little bit and the detail as well, you know, every little bit. So answering the phone in English taking sales materials to companies and addressing them in English because that's what they wanted. They wanted confidence and competence and flair in dealing with English people. So it was the focus on the total experience rather than just on, you know, how can we get leads? How can we sell stuff? How can we, that one interesting for me, it was like, how can I create this experience? Because ultimately I come from a creative 
background. And, and a lot of that as well come from the, the core values that you set. Uh, corporation, uh, was it corporation ownership and empowerment? Correct. Yeah. So you thought about like, so what, what does, what does it mean? What are the values behind what we're doing here? And how do we then demonstrate that on a consistent basis and build a community around it? That's absolutely correct. Yeah, absolutely correct. Because all the work I've done is transformational, not transactional. I find transactional businesses very boring and they, you know, you can make a lot of money with them, but I just don't find it interesting. Yeah. I like uh, to work with businesses where you feel different or interesting or it's just something that is different. And uh, yeah. so that's what we focus on is creating this experience of more or less doing business with English people, which is what they were. They were doing yeah. business with English people. And at the same time, we were coaching and training. Yeah. Brilliant, brilliant. So you create this amazing experience, total experience around English and, uh, and being absorbed in that. What was the next thing for you? Yeah. So um, the next thing was I focused on being unashamedly different. Unashamedly different, I like that. I think that's an important adjective to add. Oh, it's not even an adjective, it's an auxiliary adjective. <laughs> Unashamedly different. <laughs> You're making me think like a teacher again. Um, so, um, I've always been sort of keen on the idea of nonconformism, and I come from the North where nonconformism is part of the heritage. Um, and so I always liked the idea of doing things differently. I remember doing a Dan Kennedy program when I just started the business, and I remember him saying, if you want to be successful, just do everything different to everybody else. And there's a lot of people who, and a lot of marketers and a lot of business gurus who bang on about you know, being different, yet they look the same as everybody else, and they talk the same as everybody else. And what being different means is being unashamedly different. Yeah. unashamedly like and so the reasons of what we focused on in terms of being different number one we didn't use Mr. or Mrs. like the Germans did when we met you we'd use yeah. first name sounds weird but you know the power of using the first name yes yes yeah. it helps to connect you call your brother and your sister and your best friend their first name that's it yeah 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 exactly uh, but second of all just the way we showed up and the way we talked about ourselves and the way we delivered training and the coaching and the services, the way we worked with clients, we focused on customer happiness. That meant I used to ring clients like every week and just for a chinwag, just for a chat. You don't do this in Germany, really. Yeah. It's not yeah. really how it works. And so the Germans are amazing at producing profitable businesses, but not great. I'm sorry if there's any uh, German listeners uh, but they're not great and they are not traditionally great at customer service, which means basically treating the customer like a king. And so that was part of this being unashamedly different as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Robin Chalmers says about ADOV, always deliver outrageous value. And that's not just about like the products and the services you give. It's about, as you say, total experience. Total experience. Uh, you know, I, I would say it's the journey that matters. Yeah, yeah, love that. Yeah, yeah, journey that matters. And I always felt that. And what I did with that business, Clive, like, I just looked at the businesses I liked and they're yeah. doing good and then just thought, oh, well, that would be good if we could do that or whatever. Yeah. And the other thing that I'd like to add as well is in that business, I had, I, had, I had full-time staff, but I also mainly hired freelance trainers. So they were my clients as well because I needed them to deliver the services. 
And so this idea of community building, but also cooperation, ownership and empowerment, this applied to them as well. And I needed them to go out into the companies I was working with and deliver the same message as me, the same service as me. And that was quite hard. I, I, you know, I, I'd done thousands of hours of this and I was expecting these people to go out and deliver the same level with, you know, far less. So one of the yeah. key things that I had was a very comprehensive training program. That's how we scaled. We hit the glass ceiling and I realized I need more people. But I was worried about the level of quality, so I created such a comprehensive and such a powerful training program that I was able to then bring four, five, six trainers on, and I knew they would go out and have the same values and the same attitude as me. And this was all about the experience. And then, so instead of thinking about performance, I didn't really think about that. And I look back, and I'm a bit ashamed because I didn't really look at the figures back then. I had my partner to do that. I was just focused on delivering the best so that nobody can reproach us. Yeah, yeah. And this is an important point as well about how you went out and found the same trainers. I always think like when you first start, you want a team around you who absolutely share those values and at a certain extent they're like a little mini me, not necessarily because they're northern or white or what you know, guy or whatever, but simply because they share your values and they have that same level of energy and excitement. Whatever it is, the qualities that make you you if you can take some of those, like the important stuff, you can distill that into another person. That's great. And then later on, as you grow your team, that's when you start to realize you need more diversification by, like, in terms of attitude. So, if, you know, for me, I'm a, uh, somebody who's like a, a real go out and getter. I'm a great initiator, but I'm poor on follow up. So like, I need somebody now and then to rein me back and say, like, come on, Clive, <laughs> you know, see this through. And I think that you know when you've reached that that bit when you need somebody who's going to challenge you a little bit more. Yeah, absolutely. Totally agree. Um, there's also one more thing with regard to this being different thing. I think this is a yeah. bit less than I spoke to you about this before. And it's what I came to call risking a loss so that we can make a gain. And yeah. one of the things that I realized was happening in the language market at that time, like 2009, 2010, Everybody in my market was using the same language, same offers, same services, same boring angles. Because I was so, so sure of who I wanted, what I did was not only attempt to attract those people, but I consciously, and this is where this unashamed thing comes in, I consciously pushed people I knew weren't going to give us money away, away, pushed them away. And so how that looks in real life is uh, someone would come into the school, and I would look to qualify them as soon as possible. And I think this is a mistake that a lot of companies make, specifically like consultants, coaches, experts. Their qualification takes place far too late on in the process. They end up investing hours and hours and hours into a prospect to turn out the prospect don't want to buy anything. I didn't have the time, the resources, or the cash to be able to do that. So I needed to qualify you almost as soon as you came through the door. So the way that would work is I would have someone come in and I had already printed a list of all our competitors on a piece of headed paper, all our competitors, all their contact details, all the emails, all the numbers. I would speak to you and within a few seconds I knew whether or not you might be a prospect for me. If I thought you weren't, I would say to you, Clive, okay, it's great to hear that you want to learn English. It sounds like we're probably a touch expensive for you. We are the most expensive school in town 
Uh, we work with high-level businesses, and we focus on actually teaching you how to speak English with confidence, competence, and flair, rather than uh, teaching you the grammar and the ins and outs, because we don't believe that's yeah. important. Yeah, so if somebody just wanted enough to get by during a holiday or something, that they weren't a good match for you. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So what I would say is, uh, here's a list of our competitors. They're much cheaper than us. You know, they offer tons of different courses for all sorts of different people. Go and have a word with them. Like I say, if you're happy to just sort of sit in a room with 20, 30 people and just sort of listen and absorb some stuff and you don't want to pay very much for it, these are the people you need to go and speak to. Yeah, yeah, love it. Hey, so I like that you were willing to uh, to turn work away yeah. to make sure that you had the right work. And yeah. also yeah. spending less time, less of your valuable time, wasting it with people who just probably aren't going to convert and if they do convert then they're just going to be focused on the money all the time Correct. and that's so probably going to get great results that was it and i now know that's a great strategy but back yeah. then i just did it because i said i can't i can't talk to everybody i can't yeah. speak to everybody because i don't have time again it's, it's what i call risking a lot of pushing people away and i could only do that because i knew exactly who it was that i wanted to work with and what ended up happening a lot of the time was those people who would come in and i would give them the list Two weeks later, they would be back saying, oh, I've had to think about it and I'm, I would like to invest that money because who wants a cheap solution? Yeah, yeah. Bob, let me ask you, what else did you do? The next thing we did, I think we're on number six, yeah. proven results. Proven results. results. Um, that means I have the experience, the confidence and the ability to come into your company and assess your people and then tell you almost to the hour how long they would need to get them up to where you wanted them to be, right? So it wasn't guaranteed, but could almost guarantee it. Because I'd done two or 3,000 hours already in the dirt, I knew yeah. how long it took to take someone from zero English to be able to speak confidently at a trade show, for example. Yeah. And so because I could promise proven results, what happened is rather than me pitching stuff to clients, they would come to me and say to me, oh, I've got this guy, I need him to do this. How long do you think you'll need to get there? Basically yeah. saying, there's a blank check, can you just put a number on it, and then we're good to go. And that was because I could guarantee proven results. I, could, I had the experience, I had the competency, the expertise to be able to know exactly how long it was going to take you, exactly how much money you'd need to invest. Yeah. I could probably tell you where you were going to slip up as well and have problems because I would do personality assessments with clients before we taught them. Yeah. Um, and so this proven results thing was really important. And if, if it wasn't results, then it was a proven roadmap. It was a proven way. This is the way we're going to take. And this is what we're looking to achieve. And this is how long it's going to take. So that was definitely a key part of it. Yeah, yeah. And that's really important, isn't it? If you haven't got them when you start out, you did because you you coached thousands of people before. If you haven't got that, you can go out and do it. You, you go out, work it out, do it, even if that means like taking work on for free to start with. You've just got to, to work it out, use that as a way to get social proof and evidence for what you've done in the, in the past. And by then you've worked out what works, how to get good results. Yeah. It's all part of earning the right. Absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. So, and then coupled onto that with that proven results, um, the, the last thing that I want to share with, uh, in terms of how we, how we did this was rapid value, what I used to call rapid value. And what that basically meant was I knew that uh, business was about a value exchange, right? Yes. I was there in my school. I knew I was surrounded 
by companies. So I knew I don't have to look for clients because they're there. So yeah. how do I talk to them? That was the thing. So back in those days, that was like 2009, Facebook was just getting bigger. YouTube was just becoming a thing. And so in, turn, in the way that I delivered rapid value, number one, I created YouTube videos and posted them on local Facebook groups, which nobody was doing at the time. And number two, what I did was I created like an info pack of checklists and cheat sheets, how, you know, how to get the best out of your, your English speaking trade show and all this type of thing. Yeah. I created about 12 or 13 of those and had them in info packs. And it was so funny because I used to chuck them all in the back of the car. I used to get up for like five, chuck them all in the back of the car and then just drive around for seven hours going, oh, that looks like an international company. I'll go in there. Because I knew it was a value exchange. It was just like, how do I deliver value to these people, even though I don't know them? It was through delivering content, but not in the way that, you know, the digital marketing gurus bang on about it now. It was actually yeah. going to the companies and delivering these things, all this, this, this great useful stuff that would help them save money and save time and, and all these things. And they then just slowly started coming in, you know, slowly. Started. But that was great as well because that also gave you the opportunity to start a conversation and to find out who's on reception. And, like, you know, even if you don't speak to the CEOs as you drop your stuff in, you've got a name in the company. Absolutely, and, yeah, absolutely. Work, when you work with those people, they're like the – those. sometimes we see the gatekeepers as the people preventing us from getting to the people that we want. But sometimes they're the people who can connect us. Yeah. And imagine, imagine this, yeah? Imagine this. So you've got, you, mean, you and I are in, in, in this little little car in the middle of Germany. We know nobody at all, yeah? But you and I have to go and sell language training, right? So what we do is we drive to the first big company, yeah? And we walk in and all we do is say, hi there, do you speak English? And the receptionist will go, Helmut! <laughs> and we'll call in the CEO or the sales director or whoever speaks English, and you're in. Yeah. And you can never claim that I can't do what I say I'm going to do because I'm an English speaker. Yeah. You know what I mean? And yeah. that was how we did it as well. We just used to go in and I'd say, do you speak English? And they'd say, oh, I'd say, okay, well, you're in luck. <laughs> <laughs> so again, it's, the, it's about a starving crowd, you know. It's about yeah, yeah. Crowd, yeah. No, well, that's what I was going to say. You were just in the right place, yeah. weren't you? That's that's where there was an obvious need for it. So brilliant, excellent. This has been brilliant. You've, you've mentioned so many different things. Right, position you, um, position yourself, unique value proposition. You talked about total experience. Um, I'm looking at my note there. Being unashamedly different. Yeah. I love that. I really love that. Um, so you've done all of those things. I kind of want to ask you about your never again moments uh, and if there's anything else that you want to share with us because i'd be off now fella. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you can't go until you share the never again moment no. <laughs> so because i think there's like we make mistakes all the time but they are sometimes the best learning opportunities yeah yeah before we get on to that if somebody wants to get hold of you bob yeah how do they do that tell us the chance to to tell people how to, how to connect with you. Yeah, well, the best way to connect with me nowadays is uh, usually via social. Um, so I'm big on Instagram. I love Instagram a lot um, on LinkedIn as well. So um, yeah, search me on there, connect with me on there. Um, right now we are launching a new program. So like everything's in, in foot at the moment. 
uh, but I'm keen to my torch burning on social, and that's probably the best best place to 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 go. And my my focus with social media is just creating creating content uh, and just sharing stuff and, and being creative and uh, sharing yeah. values. So I've got no doubt that if someone's listening, they'll be able to find me on. Yes. And you're doing a program at the moment on predictable client flow, aren't you? Yeah, that's right. So basically, I've, I'm sort of crowbarred all the, the last sort of 12 years of experience and knowledge that I've had. I, I do a lot of consulting and coaching and mentoring yeah. as well since then. I've crowbarred all that into a program for experts, for consultants, coaches, service providers who are selling to other companies. And it's basically understanding how to build a, a consistent deal flow. There's far too many uh, people out there who are focusing on just these individual sections of the actual client experience. And what the predictable client flow is about is about owning the whole journey from the moment your prospect has this little pain in his mind to the moment your prospect becomes like an enthusiastic ambassador. And I, I suppose I can only do this because I've been through this process. I've tried stuff out. And the idea is with, with the predictable client flow uh, program is that I've sort of done the work for you. So if you're a startup consultant or you're a, 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 a service company looking to grow, maybe from like, you know, 100,000 to 500,000 or whatever, this is probably a quite, in, a quite an interesting program for yeah, you. Yeah. And I think it's great as well that, you know, if you're going to go out and do something, why not spend some time with somebody who's already done it? And everybody's got advice for you. You can speak to anybody, like your mum or like your sister or like whatever. Everybody's got advice for you. But the best person to take advice is somebody's actually made it work rather than those people who tell you not to do it or whatever. Yeah. So you've made yeah. it so great. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. And I think, though, what I want to say about that is um, I always I always sort of pre I usually prefix uh, interviews by saying, do not listen to me. Do not believe me. Listen to me, but don't believe me. Like, don't believe, just blindly believe what I'm saying. Go out and experiment and test it out. What an interesting guy. Uh, as you can see, this is a bit of an extended edition today. It's a lot longer than we would normally spend. Probably only ran by about 20, 25 minutes. Um, but I hope it's been worth it to you. It's the real gold there shared by Bob. And just a quick reminder that you can go and pick up the cheat sheet, which is really the crib note from today. All of the tips and ideas that Bob has shared distilled in a, you know, a simple cheat sheet. You can go and download that at getrealaboutbusiness.com forward slash 21. That's it for today. If you've got any questions, then uh, do head on over to my private Facebook group. It's free for you to join. It's called Earning the Right. Just do a quick search on Facebook for Earning the Right or check out the link that I'll put in the show notes page. Again, getrealaboutbusiness.com forward slash 21. So you can come and chat with us in the group and ask any more questions. Bob is in this group as well, so you can uh, come and have a chat with him. Next week, we'll be back with another episode. In fact, I've got Rod Arnold for you. Now, Rod is exceptional when it comes down to social media and LinkedIn in particular, but many other platforms. He was one of the big brains behind Kim Garst, top social media influencer. Uh, he'd been working with her for a number of years. He was a key member of that team. He's now started his own marketing business. He's looking to do some amazing things uh, as he runs his own marketing business at Force Multiplier Marketing. You're coming to hear in the interview. There's some good tips here around web design. Until then, take care of yourself. Here's to you and your highly successful business.